You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you guys will go ahead and take your seats, that'd be great. And open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 33 this evening. Um, Two things, real quick. One, uh, we're not charismatic. If you're uh, here visiting, this rag is because I sweat a lot. It's not one of those kind of rags. Um, (laughs) uh, Second, man, I've enjoyed singing the Psalms these past couple weeks. I understand it's been kind of weird for us. I can hear it in the, I don't know this melody that you're doing, but Scripture tells us to sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We have been lacking on the Psalms category of that, so that's why we've been working on that. So, yeah, you're going to learn them, and it's going to be good. And you don't have a choice because you don't pick the music up in here, right? Anyway, uh, yeah, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and tonight we come to the, f- the first of three accounts in Mark's Gospel of Jesus foretelling his suffering, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. The first of three. Now the text before us this evening is prophetic in nature. And I say that because Jesus is prophesying what's going to happen to him, right? At this point in the gospel, this is yet future, right? Something I think we forget sometimes is that Jesus prophesied his own death as the great prophet of God. Uh, But again, that he will suffer, die, and be raised. Now, these are really common facts for us on this side of the cross and resurrection. Uh, But something I want you to bear in mind this evening is that for the disciples, this is the first time that they're hearing this. And this was absolutely unfathomable and absolutely unacceptable for them. The idea of a suffering Messiah, the idea of a rejected Christ, of a dying Savior, was completely foreign and offensive to them as first century Jews. And we're going to get into that more here in a minute. But for us, right, as Christians on the other side of the cross, we see great beauty in this text. Great beauty in the words of our Lord, because in these words, we see the work of our redemption foretold and promised by none other than the Redeemer himself. And there's something beautiful in that. So this evening, if you're a Christian, I don't plan on teaching you a single thing that you don't know, like last week. But I want to show you and remind you of what Jesus has done to save sinners, so that we might be led to worship him with greater gratitude. Right with, dare I say it, deeper emotion, which I know makes some Reformed people uncomfortable, but it shouldn't. Right, That we might worship Christ with tears of thanksgiving in our eyes and tears of joy in our eyes for his work of salvation done for those who don't deserve it. That's us. So what I want to attempt to show you really is three things from the text this evening. First, I want to show you the great humility of our Lord Jesus And we're going to see his humility in that the king of the universe would be willing to suffer and die for sinners and embrace it before it happens. The second thing I want to show you is the necessity that the Messiah should suffer and our great need for it to be so and our great need for the suffering Messiah. And thirdly, I want to show you the great love with which Jesus loves his people. And I want you to see that in the fact that Jesus would not be hindered from going to the cross. As strange as it may sound to hear, he was determined to die for you, Christian. So may God bless the preaching of his word as we look through these three things from this text. Now, if you would and you're able as a sign of respect for our God, please stand with me now for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he, that is Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our most merciful and loving God, we come now to the preaching of your word, and we come to it needy, and we come to it desperate. 
please have mercy on us and speak to us by your spirit working alongside the word that he inspired. Give us eyes that we might behold your great love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fill our hearts with gratitude and love for you that overflows into true praise because of the love with which you first loved us. Be pleased to speak to us now through your word. Show us our need. Show us our redemption. Show us Christ. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so some, some context here as, as we begin. Uh, you'll remember last week, and as I say all the time, if you weren't here last week, you'll pretend. Uh, in verses 27 through 30, we saw Peter make the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, right? That is, Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, on behalf of the twelve, as a spokesman of sorts, has just confessed that Jesus is the chosen one of God who has come to bring the promises of God to pass and bless the people of God. And last week, we reviewed the implications of that confession, right? And we, look, we looked at what all it means that Jesus is the Christ. We, we considered that that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the God-man and therefore worthy of our worship. We saw that since he is the Christ, then he is the only Christ because there's only one Messiah and therefore he is the only way to be saved. Third, we saw that he is the great prophet of God who came to preach the gospel of the kingdom and call sinners to repentance and faith in himself. Right? He is the great teacher of God's people. Fourthly, we saw that he is the great priest who offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for sinners to save them. And fifthly, we saw that he is the great king whom God has chosen to rule over his people and even the whole world. And that one day he will have visible dominion over the universe. And that makes me very excited every time that I get to say that. He will have dominion over everything. But remember, Peter doesn't understand all of that yet. He doesn't get that yet. Peter was correct in declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, but he didn't yet understand what all that confession implied or declared about Jesus and what he would do. But Jesus now, in our text, he's beginning his march towards Jerusalem to be crucified and make atonement for sins and be raised from the dead. As Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 50, says, the Messiah now sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And nothing, as I said in the introduction, would keep him from going to the cross. Nothing would keep him from the work that he was sent into the world to do, which is to save the people of God and establish his kingdom. And now Jesus decides to plainly declare to his disciples what that work would entail for him. Again, the work entailing suffering, dying, and being raised from the dead. But before we get to that, before we get to the text, there, there's some cultural and historical background that you need to understand. Right? Because what Jesus said to his disciples was absolutely revolutionary for them and upended their entire way of thinking about the Messiah and his mission. Right? You see, the, the Jews had a very specific expectation of Messiah. And it wasn't very spiritual, to be honest. It was mainly political. By and large, you can, you'll find this in almost any commentary that you ever read about first century Judaism. By and large, the Jews of the first century expected the Messiah to be a king. Right, since he was of the seed of David. But, and, and we would agree with them on that, right? Jesus is the king. But they expected a literal king of a geopolitical nation, of an earthly nation. They expected the Messiah to show up, establish an eternal Davidic monarchy, assume a literal throne over Israel, gather together a mighty army, and drive out the Gentiles from Israel. They expected that when the Messiah came, he'd reveal himself, get an army, and kick the Romans out, and that the Messiah would then lead a militaristic campaign to conquer the world and bring all the Gentile nations under the rule of Israel, and that he would make all the nations subservient to Israel, and that the Jews would then, under the Messiah, rule the world in a physical, temporal, golden age brought about by political, earthly militaristic means led by the Messiah. Now, we agree with some of these expectations, right? Some of it has the ring of truth to it. Jesus, the Messiah, is the true king, right? And he is the king of a kingdom. It's just not an earthly kingdom, right? And he is, he's king over a spiritual kingdom that eventually does make his dominion manifest in the world in that the citizens of his kingdom live in the world, and we do believe that Jesus is conquering the nations. Maybe you've forgotten that. 
Right, Psalm 2, he has asked his father for the nations as his inheritance, and he is currently receiving them as the gospel is preached, and sinners are converted throughout the world. One person at a time, he will take over the world. And we do believe that the people of Jesus' kingdom will reign with him one day. But we understand that the work of the Messiah and his kingdom is more spiritual than it is earthly. Again, it has earthly outworkings and implications for sure, but it is not primarily an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But again, the Jews of the first century and the apostles were not superhumans. They were not exceptions to this. They had false expectations for the Messiah. I know if I'm, if I'm laboring the point, it's because you need to get this. They expected the Messiah would be an earthly king over an earthly nation who conquered by earthly means and led the Jews to rule the world and crush their enemies with earthly military force. And they're wrong. They're wrong. And so Jesus' words in our text this evening would have absolutely smacked Peter across the face. Right? It would have struck the twelve in a way that we can't really imagine. They would have never seen this coming because they had no category for a Messiah who suffers. They did not have that. In fact, some Jewish comment, some ancient Jewish commentaries skip over Isaiah 53 because they don't know what to do with it because they reject the idea of a suffering Messiah or that one particular passage in Isaiah 53 about the servant of the Lord. They'll say, well, that's not about the Messiah anymore. That's about the people of Israel. So they'll arbitrarily switch from the Messiah to the people of Israel because they don't have any room for a suffering Christ. But again, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, but he has some false expectations about what that means. And then Mark tells us this, verse 31. We're going to go through line by line. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So Christ begins to teach them. He's telling them something that they don't know, right? something they don't understand. And he begins to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now we've got to flesh that phrase out, Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man more than he calls himself anything else in, in all the Gospels. And I think that there's a couple of reasons why Jesus uses that title here in our text. First, to call yourself a Son of Man was a term of humility, right? This sounds very strange to us being 21st century Westerners. Uh, but back then, uh, in their culture, it was a fairly common way to refer to yourself without explicitly saying that you're talking about yourself, to refer to yourself as the Son of Man. And generally, you would refer to yourself as a Son of Man if you were telling about something bad that happened to you or that you knew was going to happen to you or that someone threatened that they would do to you, right? So you could say, the Son of Man is going to have a bad day because Jeff said he's going to beat him if he hasn't paid the money that he's owed, right? Seriously, like you could use it like that. Again, it's very strange to us. But the Son of Man could be used to speak about yourself without actually saying you're talking about yourself. And it's usually negative. So that fits the context here because Jesus is foretelling his future suffering. So that's possible. But a second reason that Jesus may have used this title, and this is the one that I think is more probable, it's because the title Son of Man is messianic. It's a Messiah term. It's a a Messiah title. But while it's a messianic term, it, it for some reason was not a term that most Jews in the first century readily associated with the Messiah. What I mean is that the title Son of Man did not carry with it all of the expectations of military conquest and political rule that the title Christ did. So Son of Man is a way that Jesus could own and declare his office as Messiah without immediately having to fight off the cultural baggage that came with it. Right, But, hear me, if you were paying attention to what he said, and you were paying attention to the things that he did, and the things that he claimed for himself, and then you heard him refer to himself as the Son of Man, you'd know what he was saying, but you'd have to be paying attention to him and actually taking him seriously if you were going to catch it. So this was almost like a bit of an undercover way for Jesus to own his office as the Messiah publicly during his earthly ministry so that people wouldn't immediately try to force him to become the political king of Israel, right? But as I just said, the title Son of Man is Messianic. Um, Even if most Jews back then didn't recognize it immediately, it was still a Messianic title. And we need to understand the background to this title if we're to see the great humility of Jesus and also how shocking 
it must have been to hear that the Son of Man must suffer, and how shocking it should be for us if we're going to try to pretend like we have fresh eyes on this text. It should shock you. The title Son of Man, some of you guys already know this, comes from Daniel chapter 7, right? You guys are familiar with Daniel 7. Uh, I recommend you read it, right? Go home and read it this evening. Read all of Daniel. It's good. It's all good. Um, But starting in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7, we see a picture of God the Father, who's called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, and he's seated on his throne in the heavenly courtroom. Um, Now, this is a beautiful, awe-inspiring picture of God, right? It's, It's God seated in judgment and sovereignty on his throne. It's a picture of his holiness. It's a picture of his wisdom, his eternality, uh, that he is the great judge. Fire is coming forth from his throne. It's a terrifying picture as well. And then we read this. In the midst of this heavenly scene, in the heavenly courtroom, with the Father on his throne, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Beautiful text. So this human figure, this son of man, comes up to the throne of God the Father. And what does the Father give to him? Dominion and glory and a kingdom. The son of man is a king. Right? This is a picture of sovereignty. That he is given dominion means that he is the sovereign ruler. And since God is the one who gives him this dominion, then none can actually oppose him and win. Right? And his kingdom and his reign, Daniel says, is glorious. Right? And it's everlasting and it cannot pass away. It cannot be destroyed. So the Son of Man is the eternal king over an eternal kingdom with all sovereign power and authority vested in him who has been appointed by God. And where does he reign? Over all the earth, all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. And serve here is an interesting word. Depending on the context, it can mean worship, and I think the context here would demand that. This isn't mere servitude, but serving with all of their being. This is worship. So this king is to be worshipped by the entire world, crowned by God, And his reign is forever and ever over a kingdom that will overcome every rival kingdom and throw them down because his dominion is unstoppable. Now we know that this is Jesus. This is the Christ. And that he formally received this kingdom when he ascended to heaven. Read read Acts chapter 2 if you think I'm crazy. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. He's been crowned. He's been given his kingdom. He is the king, and he is going out to conquer. And now before Jesus' disciples, he is saying that he is this son of man. He said, "That's, that's me. When he refers to himself as the son of man, the universal king who... Not yet, but will one day be crowned the sovereign of the cosmos. And his appointment and crowning will be by God. And this king, says Jesus, he himself, this sovereign one, must suffer. The king must suffer. The almighty one must suffer. You can imagine the confusion that comes over the faces of the disciples here. They don't understand how this is possible how is this future glorious king over the whole world going to suffer doesn't that defeat the whole point right this seems like a contradiction to the disciples i'm sure but jesus does not explain the details here he doesn't he doesn't even say why this has to happen he just affirms that the son of man the blessed king appointed by god must suffer but the son of man isn't just going to suffer a little jesus says he must suffer many things He must suffer many things. 
I can't get around that. The king must suffer many things. And again, he doesn't tell them what all that this entails. He just tells them that it must happen. But we, being on the other side of the cross with more revelation than they had at this time, we know exactly what Jesus was alluding to. The Son of Man would indeed suffer, and he would suffer many, many things. Some things we remember from the passion of our Lord is that he must suffer the hurt of being betrayed by someone he had only ever done good to. The one whom he broke bread with would be his betrayer, that is Judas. We know that he must suffer the pain of being abandoned by every single one of his friends on the night of his betrayal. That he must suffer being bound like a common criminal, though he himself had never done wrong nor sinned. And he must be beaten mercilessly and be mocked upon and spit upon by the very people he had come to preach to. Even the ones that he had created. He must suffer scourging at the hands of cruel men until his back is ripped to shreds. He must be crowned with a mocking crown of thorns. He must be brutalized and humiliated and shamed. He must suffer many things. The king must suffer. The humility of this king is beyond compare. He must suffer, and he knows this, and he accepts this. I, w- I want you to know this. Verse 32, whenever it says, he, he told them this plainly. It means, it means plainly, but it also carries a connotation of with boldness and without fear. He accepts that these things are going to happen to him, and he's made his peace with them. He's not afraid of them. He says, these things must happen to me, though. The great king, who knows he will one day be crowned who's come down from heaven, the eternal word of God is going to suffer like this. There is no king like this anywhere in the world. There is no God like this in all of the false religions of the world. This is Jesus. But then he goes on to speak of the rejection he must endure. He says he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And in mentioning these three groups of people, what Jesus just did is he summarized the entire Sanhedrin. That is the the highest ruling body under Rome in Israel. So these are the religious elite of Israel, those who are to make judgments and rule justly over the people of Israel in religious matters. These are the ones who are supposed to know the scriptures the best and be able to spot Messiah the quickest. These are the ones, humanly speaking, who should have recognized Jesus first and rejoiced at his coming. And it will be these who reject the king of kings. It will be these who reject their own Messiah, who reject the Son of Man. These are the ones who will give a mockery of a trial to the Lord Jesus, who will accept false witnesses with contradictory stories because they hate Jesus so badly. As John says in the Gospel of John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own received him not. These are the ones who will mock him the most and shame him and call him a liar and a blasphemer. All of this is to happen, this great rejection by the rulers of Israel. It's to happen to their king, whom God has appointed, and he will allow it. Imagine that. If they're to do anything, he must allow it to be done to him. And he will allow it. The humility of Christ is astounding. But that's not all. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be killed. The sovereign king will be killed at the hands of sinful men. Condemned unjustly, the judge of all the earth will be handed over to death. And this word killed here, I didn't know this until I was studying, it implies a slaughter. This is brutality. He will be violently killed, inhumanely killed, murdered by evil men. The Son of Man will be slaughtered like an animal, and the King of the universe will have his blood poured out. Now, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples what manner of death he will suffer, but again, we know more than they did. He's referring to the terrible death of crucifixion. The Son of Man is to be completely brutalized, beaten within an inch of his life, crowned with a crown of thorns, stripped completely naked, forced to carry a crossbar through the streets to his own execution. 
the Son of Man is to be nailed to a tree, to a cross, naked and exposed to the world, less than a foot off the ground so that those near him can spit in his face and pull out his beard and laugh at him and mercilessly mock him as he struggles to breathe until he finally dies. The Son of Man will die the most shameful death imaginable. I beg you, whenever you consider Christ and him crucified, don't church it up. Don't church it up. Right? Everyone's seen like the pictures, right? We can talk about the second commandment some other time, but everyone's seen the pictures of Christ crucified and he's, he's 30 feet in the air with a loincloth and a wound in his side. That's not what happened. He's probably six inches off the ground, stripped completely naked, possibly with a spike impaled through his bottom so he didn't slide off the cross on a cross that had been used many times and defecated on from previous people who had been slain on it outside of the gates of the city, not very far, so that passers-by might behold him and mock him as he strangles. The king. The king. Can you see his humility? The anointed one of God will allow these things to happen to him. But that's not the end. For all the awful things that Jesus says he must endure, there is one ray of hope. After three days, rise again. This is the only happy thing in all of Jesus' words in this verse. And this is, this is our blessed hope, right? But, but Jesus, uh, rather his disciples, seem to disregard it in what follows. It's like they don't pay attention to this last bit. But here we see our hope that the Son of Man would not stay dead. That as Psalm 16 tells us, the Lord would not allow his Holy One to see corruption, but that Christ would be raised from the dead following his death. The Son of Man would indeed reign after being killed. He would be vindicated as the Christ. He would be enthroned on his, uh, over his kingdom. I love this. That death would not be able to hold him shows that indeed he is king over the entire universe. Death could not hold him. Even death must give him up when he says so. The Son of Man will be glorified, but first he must suffer. But he will be glorified. So we've considered Jesus' prophecy concerning his own fate and his future resurrection from the dead. But I want to point out one little word in verse 31 that makes all the difference in this passage, and you probably glanced over it as we read, because I know I did at first read. It's the word must. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Behind this small word, is all the weight of scriptural prophecy and divine ordination. The Greek word here carries the connotation of divine appointment. These things must happen to Jesus. Why? Because this is the plan of God. Because this is the will of God, and nothing can thwart the will of Almighty God. God had revealed through the Old Testament prophets that this is what will happen. God has predestined it to take place, as Acts chapter 4 tells us. And all of history has been pointing to this event from the garden on. Everything. All of the covenants of the Old Testament. Beginning with Adam and Eve, whenever a serpent crusher is promised. On to Abraham, where we find out whose family the Christ is going to come through. On through King David, where we're told even further what, what tribe and what direct lineage the Christ would come through. All of the covenants are pointing to this must. Every single promise of God is pointing to this. All of God's providence over the affairs of Israel. All of them. In the book of Esther, Israel should have been wiped out. Why does God intervene? That the promise might come to fruition because this must happen. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this. All of God's providence over the nation of Israel as a whole and, as the, and in the affairs of individuals has been serving the purpose that the Son of Man would suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise from the dead. It must happen. It has to. 
This is the plan and will of God. The contrary is an absolute impossibility. But why? Why why is this necessary? Because of what we in theology call the covenant of redemption. Because in eternity past, God the Father determined that his son would suffer and be rejected and be killed and be raised from the dead in order to redeem God's elect from the wrath of God against their sin. The Godhead had covenanted within himself that this is what would happen for the salvation of sinners and the glory of God. The Father had chosen a people to give them to the Son so that the Son would save them and then that they, being redeemed by the Son, would worship the Son. And the Son had agreed to accomplish the salvation of these people by living and dying and being raised for them. And the suffering of the Son is an integral part of this plan and covenant to save God's chosen people. It must happen. There is no other way. If there was, there's no other way for the people of God to be redeemed. If sinners are to be saved, then the Lord Jesus must die. And atonement for sin must be made. Isaiah had prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 53, as I mentioned earlier. And we're not going to read it all, but go home and read Isaiah 52 and 53. But those two chapters tell us of the Messiah's suffering in order to make an atonement for God's people. Especially in Isaiah 53, it was foretold that the servant of the Lord, that is the Messiah, the Son of Man, must be beaten beyond human semblance. That he would be despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. With grief, that is, suffering. Isaiah said that the Messiah would be smitten by God. That he would be pierced and crushed. That he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. That he would be crushed by the Lord and made to suffer. But that this suffering would be in our place. Because Isaiah says our iniquities would be placed on him. And in our place by his death, Isaiah says he makes an offering for guilt. That is our guilt. For our sins that we've committed. And Isaiah also says that after dying, I love this, after dying, he will still yet see the fruit of his suffering. Which is the salvation of sinners. That he will make many to be accounted righteous in the eyes of God. And that he will see it. That is, he will be alive to see it. After dying, he will be alive to see the fruit of his suffering. And finally, Isaiah said that God would reward him for laying down his life for the people of God to save them. And I think that part of that entails receiving his kingdom as the Son of Man. This is all foretold in Isaiah, in the book of Zechariah, in the Psalms, in a lot of places. This was the divine plan for the Messiah. It was to die. But in his dying to save many from their sins. One last word on the fact that the Son of Man must suffer. Right? And I'm going to be honest. I stole this from another pastor and I made it mine. The Son of Man must suffer. And since he must suffer, that means that there is no other way. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other plan of God for the salvation of sinners. The Son of Man must suffer, be crucified, die, and be raised from the dead, or there will be no salvation for anyone. Consider this. This blew me away. Since God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise... He has the strength to do whatever he wants. He knows everything and every contingency. And he's all wise, which means he knows what is best to do with this wisdom and power that he has. We must then infer that everything he does is the only way for it to be done. Based off what God has revealed in the scriptures about his own attributes and his own character, we must see that all that comes to pass is the only way that it could be done. And that includes our salvation. The Son of Man must suffer. That the Son of Man must suffer means that the suffering of no other would do. It must be Jesus. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other Mediator. There is no other Savior. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the only way. But let's get back to our text. Verse 32. 
And he said this plainly. This sentence means what it says. Jesus didn't use any parables when he explained that he must suffer and die and be raised. He didn't use any illustrations. He just flatly told them what was going to happen to him. He wanted them to understand and know exactly what was going to happen. He didn't want them to misunderstand, right? And they understood him. They probably, again, ignored the last part about the resurrection, but they understood that Jesus had just prophesied his own death. And that much is clear by the next line. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter takes Jesus off to the side, a bit away from the disciples, and he begins to speak with him, but it's not just a talk. The text says Peter rebukes Jesus. That's astounding. Because rebuke here is the same word that's used whenever Jesus rebukes demons. Same word. Peter is being incredibly harsh and disrespectful with his words toward our Lord. And Matthew tells us what he said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He tells Jesus, you're you're wrong, that's not going to happen. Peter absolutely will not accept the idea that the Christ must suffer and die. Remember, as I said in the the context setting, Peter's a first century Jew with political and, and militaristic expectations about Jesus. So the idea of the people of Israel rejecting their Messiah is ludicrous to him. So Peter says, absolutely not. This will not happen to you. And and Peter, after I thought about this for a while, he's probably implying that he was willing to kill those who would kill Jesus. And that's not without warrant. You remember in Gethsemane, Peter drew his sword and cut the, uh, the high priest's servant's ear off. He was trying to kill him. Why? Because he, he did not want to see Jesus get arrested. And then Jesus rebuked him again. But Peter will not accept the idea of a suffering Messiah, and he's willing to keep it from happening. But what Peter is is really doing here is is he's contradicting what Christ has said. And that's foolishness. Just, Just for a second. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew tells us he declared that he is the Son of God in this same setting. But then he dares to tell him that he's wrong about having to die. And and Peter hotly rebukes Jesus after admitting he is the Christ and the Son of God. That doesn't make any sense. right? So just a quick piece of application. Here's a freebie for you. May this never be said of you or me that, that we would ever disagree or in our hearts try to rebuke the Lord. Whatever he says is the truth. And we are, as we're about to see, we are to humbly submit ourselves to him even if it doesn't make sense to us initially, or it goes against what we had expected, whatever he says, he he is who he is. It will be whatever he says it will be. He's the son of God, and what he says is final. We need to accept that, and Peter should have known that already. But consider on a more deep level what's going on whenever Peter rebukes Jesus. It's stunning for, for me to think about. Peter is attempting to stand between Jesus and his cross. That's what Peter's trying to do here. He's attempting to stand between Jesus and Jesus accomplishing the will and plan of God to save his people. Jesus says this must happen. It is the will of God. And Peter says, no way is that going to happen to you. And again, I think Peter's implying he's willing to try to stop it from happening. He's attempting to, become, or to, to come between Christ and his cross. Peter is so caught up in his worldly thoughts about the Messiah. He's so caught up that he's trying to keep Jesus from dying as the atoning sacrifice for sinner, sinners that Peter himself needs. He's so blinded that he doesn't recognize what he's saying. But I want you to see this. Peter is trying to keep Jesus from doing what Jesus has just said must happen in the plan of God. And so we read this, verse 33. But but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus turns and he sees his disciples, probably to see whether or not they were in agreement with Peter. Because remember, Peter tends to speak on their behalf. 
And no doubt they, they were in agreement with Peter, being men of their time with a false Jewish desire for the Christ. And when Jesus sees that they're sympathetic with Peter's rebuking him, Jesus then turns to Peter. And Jesus' rebuke that's aimed at Peter is actually aimed at anyone who would agree with what Peter just said to Jesus. It's aimed at anyone who would say that the Christ must not die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is, this is the harshest thing Jesus ever said to any of the twelve. He called Peter Satan. And, and that can technically be a term that just means adversary. But by the first century, it had become synonymous with the devil, the chief adversary of God. And so Peter, because of his rebuking of Jesus and his attempt to dissuade him from the cross, he earns being compared to the devil himself. And I want to be clear here. Peter is not satanic. His rebuke is. Right? His desire to keep Jesus from going to the cross is of the devil, not of God. And Jesus recognizes that immediately. You could put it this way. Jesus could hear the hiss of the serpent in Peter's words. Right? Has God said? Just like in Genesis. Has God said? Has God really said that you must die? Has, has God really said that you must suffer? God has not said that. You don't need to die. There is no need for you to suffer. Jesus is being tempted here. He really is. He's being tempted here. Peter is trying to get Jesus to take his crown without a cross. Peter's trying to convince Jesus to not suffer and die. And this is the exact same thing that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tells Jesus that if Jesus would just worship him, if he would just genuflect, if he would just bow to him, that he would give him, what, all of the kingdoms of the world? I'll give you a crown over the whole world, and all you need to do is bow down to me, is what Satan says to Jesus. Satan promised Jesus what God had promised to the Messiah after his suffering. Satan tempted Jesus to take the easy way out, but had Jesus done that, we would be without hope. And the plan of God would not have come to pass. Praise God that Jesus is sinless and cannot sin. But Jesus had come to do the will of his Father. And so he rebuked Satan and said, Be gone. That's what he says in Matthew. The Lord Jesus will not be put off from the cross. Not by Satan directly and not by Satan speaking through Peter. He must go to the cross and he has accepted this. While he despised the cross and its shame, nevertheless it was his joy to do the will of his Father and save his people. And so Jesus rebukes Peter and essentially says, Get out of my way. Get behind me. Nothing is going to keep me from dying for my people. I will not allow anyone or anything to keep me from doing the will of God. I must die, so move. How amazing is our Lord Jesus. He knows the costs. He knows the suffering and the pain that lies ahead of him. But he is determined to go. What a thought here. He is determined to die. And for sinners, no less. Determined to die for sinners. Not good people. Not decent people. Not people who are trying really hard but mess up a little bit. But for wicked, immoral, rebellious enemies of God. Jesus marched toward the cross for people like that. That is for people like us. There's no savior like him. None. But, but catch this. I, I can't let this go. I, I think there might be something more to what Jesus says to Peter here. And it's something that should encourage you. And, I, and I'm open to you rejecting what I'm going to say here in a minute, right? So it's just a possibility here. When Jesus said, get behind me, he, he certainly meant get out of my way. But maybe there's something else here. Maybe Jesus was giving a call to Peter to resume his place as a disciple. Get behind me where you belong, Peter. I'm the Christ. You're the disciple. Know your place. 
And where is this place? Following Jesus. So get behind me. Adopt Christ's program and reject yours. Follow Jesus to the cross. It's like he's telling Peter to get rid of his misconceptions about him and accept what he says. Because Peter is the disciple. And if that's the case, if I'm right in that, then how gracious is this of our Lord Jesus? He doesn't cut Peter off or tell him, go home, right, like we probably would have. Go home, you've imposed my will, you blasphemer, you can't be my disciple any longer, get out. That's not Jesus, though. And praise God for that. He rebukes Peter and tells Peter to know his place, but his place is still with Jesus as one of his disciples. Jesus still loves Peter. So Christian, I want you to be encouraged here. He is patient with his people. I love that. He's patient with you, even with a disciple like Peter, who, who, who had just shown him an incredible amount of disrespect. Peter was wrong. Peter was sinful, but Jesus was still merciful to him. But Peter's problem, Jesus says, is that he was thinking about the things of man instead of the things of God. That is, he was too focused on his earthly expectations of the Messiah that he would not focus on eternal things that God had planned. What Jesus had came to give to Peter and to us is a lot better than what Peter had planned that Jesus would give them. Jesus had come to establish an eternal and spiritual kingdom, not a temporal one, and to give eternal salvation from the wrath of God in hell. He come for, to give salvation to his people, and so Peter needs to come into conformity with the word of God and let go of his own thoughts, because again, what Jesus had come to do was infinitely better than what Peter had planned. But now for application this evening, I just have two short and simple things I, I want to say to you. First, I want you to see this one truth above all of them. You need this suffering Messiah. You need, I'm talking to Christians too. I'm certainly talking to unbelievers, but I'm talking to Christians. I need him. You need him. We all need this suffering Messiah. We need his atoning death in our place to satisfy the righteous wrath of God against our sins. We need him to make us righteous in the eyes of God. We need him to suffer in our place. Because if he doesn't, then we must suffer for the sins that we've committed. And if we suffer for the sins we've committed, we go to an eternal hell of fire. That is to say, we need this suffering Savior. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus die. Don't, don't lose that. You need him. Because if there was any other way for us to be saved, God would have used that. But again, since he is all-wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful, and he still sent his son to die for sinners, we know that this must be the only way. This is the plan of God. And there's no other way for sinners to be saved from damnation except through the atoning death and resurrection of Christ Jesus received by faith alone in him alone. There is salvation to be found nowhere else but in Jesus because he alone is the one appointed by God to save his people. I want you to know that. You have no hope whatsoever apart from him. And so I ask one question. And I ask this because maybe there are false converts among us. Maybe there are unbelievers among us. Have you received this Jesus? Have you turned to him in faith and believe that only he can save you? Have you embraced this suffering Savior and risen King by faith? If you haven't, then I want you to know this. You are on very dangerous ground because you stand condemned before a holy God because of your sin. And you will be damned unless you repent and believe upon Christ. But even today, even this very moment, you can be forgiven if you will but look to this suffering Savior in faith and believe that he has saved you by his death and resurrection. So I beg you, look to him and live. He is your only hope. We need him. You need him. But Christians, second, I, I, I'm talking to believers now, those of us who have received this Christ by faith. I want you to see your Savior in this text. I want you to stand amazed at him. That he would not be put off from the cross. He would not take the easy way out. He would not succumb to any temptation of Satan. He was determined to die for you. I'll say that again. Christian, he was determined to die for you. 
He wasn't going to let anyone stop him from saving you. Now, I want to be very clear. This does not mean that you're so great that you're worth dying for because you're not. And I'm not being cute. You're awful. I'm serious. You're a sinner. And and if you had just the, the smallest inkling of what it really means that you're a sinner, you would fall to your knees and weep that he would die for you. You don't deserve any love from the Son of Man. Contrary to popular evangelical opinion, you are not worthy. I take that back. You're worthy of damnation, and that's it. But this text shows us the great love and mercy of God in Christ toward you and towards me. God the Father made a plan of salvation, and the Lord Jesus executed that plan by laying down his life for you. This is amazing. Jesus would not be put off from dying for us. So great is his love for his people that he marched straight into his suffering and death. And this was done for an unworthy, undeserving people. That's love. That's the love of our Savior for us. That's the love of God and Christ for us. I want you to know, if there's any doubt, because I know some of you struggle with assurance, and I know some of you struggle with whether or not God actually loves you. Let all doubts be abandoned in this. This is the love of God in Christ for you, Christian. He loves you. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves you. It's not just the Son. The Father sent His Son for you, and then the Son willingly marched to the cross for you. Know that you are loved by God, Christian. And I'll leave you with this, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your mercy that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that he laid down his life for us. That he knew ahead of time it was no surprise to him. And yet he went anyway. God, I pray that you would help the believers among us this evening to just get on our face before you in awe of your great mercy for us. Fill our hearts, God, with gratitude. That's such an amazing love. And Lord, if there are any unbelievers among us, I pray that you would grant them faith to see this crucified Christ with the eye of faith and look to him and be saved. God, have mercy and glorify yourself in the salvation of your people and in the growth of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.